Hello, DealQuest listeners and viewers. I am so excited to have Tim Ash coming up on a episode of DealQuest. Tim, listen, you are an international speaker, an author on this great book on, on, on brain science and evolutionary psychology. What are people going to hear and how does it relate to deals on your episode of DealQuest? Wow, Corey. Well, we're going to talk about common mistakes that people make when they're doing deals. We're going to talk about unconscious biases that we can take advantage of when they're doing deals. And we're probably going to take this in a lot of different directions. That'll be a lot of fun for the listeners. And, uh, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about your personal experience and evolution and your career as well, right? Absolutely. Uh, my humble roots on another continent. <laughs> I love it. Well, listen, folks, definitely tune in to check out Tim Ash's episode of DealQuest, and you're going to you know, have the opportunity to pick up his book, which I highly recommend. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Tim Ash is an acknowledged authority on evolutionary psychology and digital marketing. He is a sought-after international keynote speaker and best-selling author of Unleash Your Primal Brain and Landing, and Landing Page Optimization. Tim has been mentioned by Forbes as a top 10 online marketing expert and by Entrepreneur Magazine as an online marketing influencer to watch. For 19 years, he was the co-founder and CEO of SiteTuners, a digital optimization agency. Uh, Tim helped create over 1.2 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars in value for companies like Google, Expedia, eHarmony, Facebook, American Express, Canon, Nestle, uh, Semantic, Intuit, Humana, Siemens, and Costco. So if that's not enough, I don't know what it is. Welcome to the show, uh, Tim Ash. Great to have you on the Podcast. Thanks, Corey. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great. So folks, some of you folks may be wondering, because obviously with his background, a lot of what Tim does on, on some of the sides you heard is around what we what I refer to as organic growth, right? It's that, it's that sales and marketing side of it. But trust me, he's got plenty of deal experience. So you're going you're gonna to hear about that, uh, not only in his past, but you're also going to hear about uh, the way his understanding of the brain impacts uh, you know, uh, deals. So uh, Tim, before we get into all of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, uh, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. Um, what did you want to be? Because my guess is a primal brain expert and online marketer might not have been it, but you tell me. Yeah, international keynote speaker was nowhere in, on the agenda. Yeah, figured that. If, if I go back to age eight, I was still in the former Soviet Union. I was born in Moscow. Okay. And that's about the age that we emigrated to the U.S. So 
when I got here, I think I wanted to be a cowboy because they're really cool cowboy hats and you know revolvers and fun toys at that age. So I figured, you know, we're going to America. Cowboy sounds like the thing to be. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's it's interesting to me, and I, I it's just brought back a memory, so I'll share it. But um, back in, so I, you know, I don't I I don't want to date you unless you want to date yourself. So I don't know what year that was um, when you were. I'm eight. old, <laughs> but. Um, uh, I remember in the this must have been the early yeah early nineties. So this was when uh, the former Soviet Union was first like things were starting to open up right after you know yeah the wall fell in eighty nine and the Soviet right. Union collapsed shortly after that yep. right exactly so so this was in the early nineties and I this is deal related was the reason that it came to my mind and I remember because you know I just thought the cowboy thing is like the American cowboy thing is stereoty- so stereotypical. And there was this deal I did. So I represented a guy who um, was a a guy who sourced goods for a company. So he was a middleman, right? Between, you know, uh, sellers and buyers or manufacturers and distributors. And and we did a deal. At that time, there were only um, mainly barter deals going on because, um, you know, the Russians had trouble getting currency or currency (laughs) out of the country or U.S. dollars or whatever it was in those early days. Um, but this was actually one of the few cash deals. It was a Russian company that set up a U.S. subsidiary or operation. And um, they, they they had a huge tanker ship and they bought tons of chicken from Purdue that was filling half of the ship. <laughs> and the other half of the ship, my guy, my client was was filling. And what was he filling it with? It's, this is what triggered the, the memory. It was the cowboy thing. Not that it was cowboy stuff, but it was sort of this stereotypical. It was it was cigarettes. It was blue jeans. Yep. It was electronics. Like it was all these like stereotypical American goods that at that time were not as available, you well, know, in, in in Russia. Well, I've been back to this uh, to Russia five times in about as many decades. And the progression is striking. The first time we went back and it was almost like uh, trinkets for the Indians. You know, you get you buy <laughs> Manhattan for a few beads. We brought uh, Casio watches. Marlboro uh, packs of cigarettes and blue jeans. That was the currency of the day. Exactly. And then later on, I, I took my cousin who worked for the Bank of Russia to the first McDonald's there and he loved it because they opened one up in near the Red Square. The next time I came back, I said, hey, Mita, let's go to McDonald's. And he said, no, nah, Tim, that's for tourists. So things <laughs> in Russia, they figured things out pretty quick, I would say. Right. Right. I love it. Yeah, no, it was, it was fast. It was a fascinating deal. I won't get into all the details of it. I think I've told the story once before early on this podcast, but it was a very fascinating deal because uh, the short the short thing was that the Russian counterparts on the other side wouldn't agree to some basic non-circumvention you know, clauses where they couldn't go directly to the manufacturers because they were now capitalists and they wanted to be free and nobody's going to tell them who they could or could not do business with. It was well, really capitalists, uh, I would say this, the, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was a very much a Wild West situation to use that cowboy analogy 100%. again. I remember uh, basically a lot of people stole the state blind as long as they had access to things. One of the things that I remember that there were export controls around strategic materials yeah. like titanium, say, which has military applications. So some enterprising Russians uh, chopped it up and, and shipped containers worth of titanium to companies in the West by calling it scrap metal. Right, <laughs> so, right. so that's how they get around those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, cre- it was a lot of creativity. Um, Hey, one one more question going back, and then I want to get, get to the present. Um, what was your first deal of any type that you can remember? It could be something when you were a kid, older, just anything that comes to mind. 
Well, the, the first deal I got was to uh, shovel lawns, or sorry, shovel lawns, shovel snow uh, in driveways in New Jersey when I was in high school. And uh, it was an insurance policy, in effect. I didn't know it, but I was basically saying, hey, pay me five bucks a week. And whenever there's snow, doesn't matter how much of it for the three months of the winter, I'll come shovel it. You'll be on the top of my list. So I guess I was a bit of a hustler back then. Well, what I love is that, I mean, listen, many of us shoveled snow as kids, but we usually got paid per, like, you know, per time. You, I, I just had, you know, this is funny to me. I just had Joel Block on the podcast. And, uh, you know, when I say just, this is going to come out a couple of months from now. So, you know, go, uh, if you go back to uh, listeners, uh, you know, uh, and view us a, a, you know, a couple of months ago, uh, I had Joel Block on and he talked about, you know, the, the, the trend, which has been going on for a while, but accelerating to subscription revenue. Well, mm. you had a subscription model back then. You Exactly. You know, that's amazing. And it's funny because that's one of the sort of uh, pieces of advice that I give to people based on evolutionary psychology and marketing. Subscription models are really powerful because it's basically the status quo bias. Your brain doesn't want to think. So anything on autopilot, just like, yep. yeah, it comes off of my credit card account or deducted from my bank every month. Anything like that where you don't have to think is the most powerful thing of all. Because if you want people to change behavior or consciously think about something, you're already at a disadvantage. It's better to lock in a default where they have to do nothing. Well, you know, it's, all right. So that reminds me of another area, which, which ties into exactly what you're saying, which is this. Um, so I've also done deals in the health club industry. And back, uh, I had a client, we sold three gyms to, uh, um, uh, not to Equinox, who was the other big one in, the, in New York City back then? Uh, um, it'll come to me. A New, uh, a New York sports club. Um, so, uh, the, the interesting part was right around that time was when the, when the health club model was evolving to, from locking you into year long contracts, but which at the end of the year, you had to actively renew. And if you didn't actively renew it, it expired. So they would like bug you to try to act to going to the monthly recurring, you know, which you can cancel any time. Right. So the, you know, this, uh, you tell me, but it seemed to me the psychology was, oh, this is way more flexible for you, the member, because you're not locked in for a year. You can cancel on 30 days notice. But the truth is, effectively, that was a boom to the industry because the default was just to keep it going. And people had to admit to themselves that they weren't going to go to the gym. Whereas having an active, you know, uh, obligation, the old model to renew was easier for them not, you know, not to do. That's a very, very powerful business model. In fact, I got caught in that one myself, uh, the power of subscriptions. I was out here in California in San Diego, and we had 24-hour fitness centers. That's the big chain. For, yeah. And I had a membership from the early 80s. I was paying $6 a month, <laughs> and they kept raising it. And eventually got to be about $50 a month. And I hadn't gone in years, but it was just like, I don't want to even think about it. So I stayed on for years without visiting the club because it was a combination of subscription model and escalating the price, kind of a, it will never be lower or this low again. Yes. Yes. Love it. Okay. So um, just give, I know I uh, talked about a little bit in your bio, but give us more specifics about what you do and who you serve. Because obviously- you know, there's a few things you do. You're an author, you're a keynote speaker, you know, you, you, you do the, the, the marketing. So who, who, what, like, what are you doing right, you know, now in your company and, and, and who are your uh, key clients, you know, uh, not in terms of names, but in terms of types of people you serve? Well, I'd like to go back. So I went to graduate school in what's called machine learning and AI yeah. these days. 
at UC San Diego. And then I applied all of that to marketing for 20 years. So I ran yeah. an optimization agency, as you mentioned. And a couple of years ago, I figured out my highest and best use on the planet isn't running a professional services firm. So I focused on keynote speaking, my new book, uh, LinkedIn learning classes, basically evangelism around the idea of uh, neuromarketing and evolutionary psychology and various applications that well, we can talk about my new book later. But so essentially right now, my main lines of business are keynote speaking all over the world at yep. uh, CEO, as well as large conferences. It's also solo advisory consulting. So basically me unlimited on call for senior marketing executives that want kind of a backup shadow CMO to make them look good. Who's on their side. Great. Great. Love it. Okay. So now let's, we're going to, we're sort of going back and back and forth here. So um, you've had some deal experience personally in the past. Yes. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit before we even get into, um, you know, the, uh, you know, what your view in terms of the, how the brain works and that, and it, unless of course there were lessons you learned in that area back then. So, but let's go back and then we'll, we'll talk about how it's applied to, you know, now. Well, as, as you know, there are a lot of different business models, and I primarily look at things through the prism of business models, which is why the subscription model and things like that are very interesting to me. Uh, but when I started my first agency, at some point, we decided to do performance-based deals. Okay. And everybody else was charging by the project or by the hour. So either the yep. risk's on you or the risk's on the client. And, and I, conceptually, to me, it was like, let's get in the same boat. If we make money, let's divvy it up. It, literally, if I make you a dollar in extra profit, then pay me 50 cents. Right. And conceptually, that was a really, really clean thing. And so I got a lot of negotiating experience when I tried to put that into practice with clients, though. And it required ultimately an 18-page contract with a big liquidated damages clause and, and the hammer, like, if you try to screw us, we're going to get the maximum amount, this sort of thing. And it just wasn't really practical because people didn't want to open the proverbial kimono and show you their finances. Right. And then the greed kicked in, too. It's like, I might have to pay you how many millions of dollars? Right. Yeah, but I just made you twice that much money. Why wouldn't you? So right. that's where I figured out that human nature very much impacts deals and uh, the deal structure and their complexity. Got it. Um, so that's fascinating. And then um, when you uh, left your company, did you exit that, that company? Until, was it sold or did you? Uh, uh, I, I sold it off to business partners and they, right. the structure of it was, you know, there's an upfront piece and then a performance-based piece as they continue to run and grow it, which they have. The agency is called site tuners. It's in the capable hands of my, my uh, friend, Marty Greif, and they're killing it. In fact, they've tripled in size since I left two years ago. So I'm not sure what that says about we, me. We want, listen, uh, coincidence is not necessarily causation. So we'll assume that's <laughs> not a causation there, right? <laughs> well, I look at it as more of an eco guy. Like I said, my life purpose wasn't running professional yeah. services, whereas as uh, my business partner, that's exactly what he's suited for. So everyone so has me, their sweet spot. Before we get into the meat of, you know, your particular expertise here, um, any, any, you know, so, uh, you know, a business partnership is a deal deciding to split a business partnership, even though it sounds like it was on wonderful terms, you know, for good reason, you know, is another deal. Um, talk to me a little bit about just, you know, anything, lessons you learned about, uh, you know, uh, being in business partnerships and then, and then, you know, what may be even more relevant to what we're about to transition to your work is, is that decision to split, you know, to, to, to split that up and how you go about that in a way that, you know. 
Yeah. One of the things that I found is that uh, I've, through my career, calibrated my scale. So the first company that I ran, I was very stingy with stock options, for example. And ultimately, I think I ended up owning 87% of it and only gave 13% away to other key players. And then the next company, and also to make it a a woman-owned business, we decided to give my other business partner 51%. uh, And that created its own complications because sure. then you're, you're kind of joined at the hip and, and it's hard to do things and there's loss of control and so on. So I kind of swung from one extreme to the other. Uh, and in negotiations, I think it's, you have to anticipate all of the things that could go wrong because in the heat of the moment, when you're dividing things up or things aren't going wrong, it should be just clear guideposts for how to do that. So that was one of my very expensive uh, get good lawyers, write up all the contingencies, uh, kind of life lesson. Love it. And then, you know, obviously this sounds like it was totally, you know, wonderful and amicable. Um, but I guess, you know, uh, let me bring it to psychology. Like uh, I know uh, how does, uh, what was your process? Because I, there are, uh, listen, I talk about highest and best use all the time. My listeners have, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, I've heard me talk about that for me, I've got, a, you know, my definition is you, you should be doing stuff that you're great at, but that's not enough because there's plenty of stuff that you and I are good at that we don't like you know, doing. You have to be passionate about it. That's number two. And then I think a lot of people stop there. Oh, I'm great enough passionate, but it's also got to be high leverage. It's got to make a difference. It's got to move the needle, whether it's in your, your company or in terms of what you want to impact, you know, in life. So that's the way I define it, at least. It was interesting you use that term, highest and best use, because I love that term. Um, but uh you know, there are many, many people who may understand that concept intellectually, right? They may understand that there's a gap between what they're doing and where they are and that, but many of them never make that jump. Um, so what, and you had a, an additional complication or factor in that, you know, if you owned your company alone, you, you, it's just a matter of doing, getting by that internal psychological shift. But you also now had a business partner, right, that you need to deal with and tell them, hey, you know, it's been great. And I love you, but uh, I don't want to be here anymore. So talk to me a little bit about that transition. Well, I think that uh, a lot of this has to do with how you define yourself. We play many roles in life. I could be a parent. I could be a keynote speaker. I could be a, an agency CEO. All, sometimes those overlap. Sometimes they conflict with each other. So I think one of the keys is to, again, work off of what you were talking about, which is a passion and an understanding of yourself. Yeah. One thing I wish I had done earlier, much earlier, is focused on my personality type and where I get that juice and passion in the first place. Yeah. So if you look at it, I'm an Enneagram type seven, which is the enthusiast. On Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP, which is the evangelist. On um, DISC, I'm high dominance, high influence, like most entrepreneurs. And So that's another initiator type of thing. So basically, they're all looking at me from different perspectives, but saying essentially the same thing. And if I'm in alignment with who I am, then I'm very powerful. If I have to backfill holes or do things that drain my power, that's actually pulling against a strong rip current. So the one thing I wish I'd done earlier is not tried to build a business or done some arbitrary thing, but said, am I running true to my nature. Mm. And, and then what, so what, so you didn't do it early. What had you made that make that shift though, right? Because now you've done run this business for 
right? Almost 20 25 years. years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, what was, and I know, listen, people often ask me, I've had sort of these, the, you know, what seemed like defining moments in my life and they're really not, they were actually an accumulation of things. There was no like one life changing thing. So I, I don't want to assume it's, you know, but, but there was a point where either there was a significant thing that happened or where these things accumulated to the point where there was a tipping point and you said it's time. You know, just I, especially from a sort of psychological point of view, because I'm fascinated by what has some people be able to change, evolve, right, take risk, all that kind of stuff versus people who get stuck in, you know, situations that are not ideal for them. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about what had you? Absolutely, Corey. I break it down into three significant phases. The first was being someone's employee. And I got to look at big companies like NCR and SAIC, which is a big defense contractor, and saw what a soul-killing enterprise it looked like from the inside. So I said, screw it. I'm not going to work for someone. I'm going to be my own boss, quote unquote. And that was yeah. the Gerber's e-myth. You know, I'm going to do it better myself. And so I jumped in, started my agency. And then I realized I was just hiring my bosses and they were, <laughs> there was high turnover in them and they were insane. And it was kind of like jumping in and uh, getting married before you date. Then you find out all of the issues that they have in terms of their corporate culture and way of doing things. So that wasn't any better. And like I said, phase three a couple of years ago was jettisoning anything that involved being an employee or hiring my bosses. And my, I have to say, it felt like a bit of a turtle without a shell because after being a CEO of an agency and having a very high public speaking profile, books and so on, you're, what are you if you're not an agency head? Yeah. What are you if you're not the CEO? So it felt a bit naked for probably three to six months. And then I realized, no, I'm still me. I am definitely powered by a different kind of engine internally. I'm on purpose and on mission a lot more. And my network and all of the loyalty that I've built is still there and fully accessible to me. In fact, being in a way a free agent allows me into different relationships. You know, we put blinders on. If, if I'm the head of a business, I'm thinking, how does this benefit the business? Yeah. I have no use for you unless it can benefit my business. And now I, I just, I'm there to serve. How can I help you? And that's just a very different place to come from. I love it. And what, you know, what you raised in that is, is something I think is one of the most powerful conversations and challenges for folks, which is, you know, it's an identity conversation, right? That conversation, mm -hmm. is, who am I if I am not CEO, if I'm not an agency head, if I'm not, right? And, and I've actually done exercises in various kinds of courses where, you know, you, you ask yourself that question, like, if I'm not my titles, and I'm not my roles, and I'm not my you know, whatever, then who, who am I really? And, you know, I've had this, some transformations in my life where I've really looked at how certain roles have become so entwined with my, my identity. And that some people, that's tough to give up. You know? Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So, okay. So now I, I want to jump to your book. I want to hear about the book. Um, and then we're going to go back and apply some of the things you talk about in the book to deals. So, but tell us about the book, the new book. 
Well, I wrote a couple of best-selling books on digital marketing in my specialty, which is making websites more effective. So I have a book that's uh, been translated into six languages called Landing Page Optimization. It's kind of the Bible in the field. This latest one is not even applied to marketing. It's called right. Unleash Your Primal Brain, Demystifying How We Think and Why We Act. And it's essentially a crash course on being human. It's evolutionary psychology from earliest life on earth to mammalian stuff to what makes us distinctly human. I cover everything from happy chemicals in the brain, the memory, the learning, sleep, storytelling, culture, our highly social natures, everything. But it's not dumbed down and it's not a bunch of scientific jargon either. It's, it's like this fast paced detective story about what makes us tick. I love it. And, and I, and, you know, listen, I am, you know, far from as versed in it as you uh, uh, are, but, but I have read, like, I'm fascinated by brain science stuff. And I, so I read some stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, and, um, you know, and I have over the last, let's say several years um, and it's such an evolving field, right. Our level of understanding yes. of the brain has is light years from what it was, but also every expert I know acknowledges that we, we still know like this much uh, compared to what's potentially available, but it's still, you know, multiples or exponential from what we used to know. Exactly. And so what I'm trying to do is unify fields like neuroscience and behavioral economics and social psychology and anthropology to some extent and break down all those silos and say, look, the red thread to, through all of that is evolutionary psychology. We have to retrace the whole evolutionary arc to understand where we picked up useful pieces along the way and understand which ones are operating inside of us. So this is really what all 8 billion people on the planet have in common. I don't care if you're an introvert or extrovert, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, this is universal tendencies of human beings. Love it. Okay. So let's, let's talk about some, what some of those tendencies are and how they might, you know, uh, apply to deals. Uh, let me... <laughs> Pretty much everything applies to deals. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so give us a, well, I guess, so let me, let me ask a specific question. Then maybe we'll go with general. Um, you know, I get, I often get asked, in fact, I just was on, you know, recording someone else's podcast where I was a guest. And, you know, one of the questions was what makes some people a deal maker and other people not. Right. Mm. So without giving anything that I would say from, from a, uh, you know, from a, a, a primal brain, you know, evolutionary, evolutionary psychology point of view, uh, how would you answer that question? Well, I would start by saying that we're always negotiating and doing deals. I have a couple of teenage kids in the house. It's a oh, yeah. daily deal making over oh, yeah. here. And some of those negotiations are a lot tougher than any business dealings <laughs> I've ever had. And so it's a useful skill to have all across the board. I, I can talk about some aspects of evolutionary psychology that I think are part of any deal making. Uh, and they're important to understand. One is that our need for black and whiteness. If something is just black and white, then it's automatically evaluated by our primal brain, by yep. the subconscious. So if I say, it's it's a sure thing or you're going to fail. Those are clear to you. If I say there's a 95% chance of something, that's a problem because now we have to use math and statistics and probability, and we're not really set up for that. So those kind of decisions are not made automatically. If you can make it a black and white choice, remove the risk, that's something that people love. So they're going to pay a premium for removing of risk and for certainty. That's a really key deal-making point. All right. So let me ask you a question on that, right? 
uh, in certainly in the personal growth field, in the uh, online course field, in like a lot of the folks I know that do, do business personal growth and sell online products or do live events and things like that, um, what's become ubiquitous is the money back guarantee, right? Yes. And for me, like I'm wondering, is that, oh, is that, that the way that they're taking the risk out of it? Exactly. You know, that fits into that certainty. And in fact, yeah. I think a lot of people are stingy with the kind of guarantees they give. It turns out from the behavioral economics that giving a lifetime guarantee is the best thing ever because I'm not worried about whether I'll exercise the guarantee. How many times have I bought a garden hose at Home Depot and then had that thing blow out? Then I go and get the new one. And what does it say on the packaging? Lifetime guarantee. I could have brought in the old one, but do you think I ever did? No, right. I just went and picked up another one and I feel good peace of mind wise because of that certainty and it's got a lifetime guarantee. Right. And, and I know statistically in, in a lot of the personal growth industry, like, yeah, the percentage of people who ever exercise any guarantee is so tiny that it's crazy not to give it. Right. So uh, absolutely. And longer, the better. For example, if you look at all those online mattress companies that say, try it in your home for 90 days and you can just ship it back to us if you don't like it. Well, the reality is you're going to put your old mattress against your bedroom wall. And after about a week, you'll get tired of looking at it and then you'll take it out to the trash or the dump. And that's it. So right. you know, I don't right. have to think about it anymore. So it's better to give a 90-day one than a seven-day one or a 14-day one. Love it. Okay. So first principle is certainty, right? 100%, 0%, nothing in between. Those are automatically risk. evaluated as being no risk. Um, another important consideration when you're making deals is the fact that we have, we're much more tuned to trouble and problems and, and what's called loss aversion of yes. uh, essentially paying attention to threats more than opportunities. Yes. So let's say, Corey, let's say you like ice cream. What's your favorite flavor? Coffee. Coffee ice cream. Okay. Here's a bowl of coffee ice cream, Corey. Only on the way over to get it, I'm going to whack you on the back of the hand with a hammer. What do you think? <laughs> not so excited. <laughs> yeah, not so excited. I mean, you have to really be a coffee ice cream fan to go for that one. So right. we're tuned actually about two, two and a half times as much to loss and and pain avoidance than we are to pleasure seeking. Both motivate, yes. but but pain is something that motivates us more. So how you frame an offer, how you say something matters a lot. Uh, let's say you went to a doctor and he said, okay, you have to have this medical procedure. Um, and there's a 95% chance that when you go under general anesthesia and come out of this, you'll be fine. Okay. Or I say this, you have to have this medical procedure and there's a 5% chance that you die on the operating table. Right. It's the same thing I just told you. It's the same thing. But right, how it I frame it and, and, yeah. and being attuned to the loss makes a huge difference on whether you're going to go for it or not. So one of the other things that you can do, maybe your situation doesn't change, the economics of the deal doesn't change, but how you frame it and whether you take advantage of that pain avoidance makes a huge difference in someone's likelihood of actually acting on that deal. I love it. You know, and it's interesting to me as somebody who, you know, one of the, uh, in the personal growth area, one of the fundamental principles of, you know, NLP, right? No, neuro uh, uh, linguistic programming. Uh, and like, to, like Tony Robbins early days, a lot of people even before him, they talk about that humans are only motivated by two things. That's the gain pleasure or avoid pain and the avoid pain is much, is a much higher, you know, uh, motivator. Mm -hmm. um, um, so it's interesting to me. So let me, let me, uh, you know, this is fascinating. And so I'm a student here as well. So let me ask a question. So one of the things I say uh, in deals, when I prepare folks for, let's say they're selling their company, 
right? And I talk about the due diligence process and how, you know, they can have lawyers and accountants and all these operations people and HR people come in and do all this due diligence, right? Um, one of the things I say to folks is we really need to go uh, through a major pre-due diligence process to get you ready because... The issue is you may have a CEO or somebody else who made the decision on the on the buyer side to buy your company, but then all of his people are coming in, right? And they are much more focused on everything that can go wrong, right? Because they're worried about their jobs, they're worried about their reputations, and if they if you close this deal and it turns out that they missed something, right? And and therefore if things aren't right, they're gonna you know if, even if they smell a little smoke, they're gonna assume they're, they're fire. And I guess in, in this language, they're going to want to avoid that pain. And it's going to weigh over, you know, uh, outweigh the uh, the opportunity of the deal with a lot of these folks. Does that fit into, you know, the thing we're talking it, it about? It does. Here? I mean, I think if you're negotiating any kind of large scale deal, I would immediately run out and buy two books. The first one is by Chris Voss, who was the chief hostage negotiator for yep. the FBI. And it's yep. called Never Split the Difference. Yep. Uh, and the other one is by Orrin Claff, and it's called Pitch Anything. And yep. he's done a lot of high stakes money raising type of deals and gone in the room to decide. One of the things that he suggests, which I agree with, is it, you have essentially psychological frames. And when those collide, one of them is going to collapse and absorb the other one. And yep. so what you just described is people coming at you with the analyst frame. Well, well, show me the spreadsheets and all of that stuff. And, right. and, and there are ways to basically take those people off their game and say, look, I'm here for the, for the high level. Do we have a deal or not? All that stuff's in the appendix. You want to go look at it after this meeting. That's great. Uh, but there's ways to defuse those people. You don't want them to take control with their analyst frame because then you lose. Then they'll just they'll yeah. be death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And, you know, and I guess what we do and do when I do pre due diligence with clients, we actually try to not have them get too far in their analyst brains because things seem so orderly and so well, you know, presented that they don't they don't trigger into that worry phase, you know. So and it's been successful. You know? That's right, and and that's what I call cold cognition. If you're making me consciously think, that's a problem. Uh, again, one thing people don't understand and a myth I bust at the very beginning of my book is that there's no such thing as a rational decision. And I mean that literally. Your mind can't decide without emotions. They've had people have various kinds of brain damage and, and lesioning in their brain. And what they found is that the conscious mind presents you with options. And there are literally infinitely many of them in any given moment. And it's your emotions that quickly narrow it down to actionable choices that have the most chances of affecting your survival. So like you say, if, oh, it's affinity or aversion. Mm. Let's go towards something good, run away from something bad. That's it. And how intensely you feel those is what makes you decide. So one of the, I had some speaker training recently. And one of the brilliant things in it is when I was, keynote my speech and making the script, they actually said, what emotion do you want to evoke by saying this? It's almost like a musical score where you annotate them. You want to have them be confused or pissed off or scared or happy. You have to have a conscious kind of emotional script anytime that you're doing a deal to make sure that you're evoking the right responses. It's all emotional. Mm. I love it. And, and, you know, the, the brain science that I've, you know, studied as well, I, you know, I, I, I believe that and it's not a matter of believing it's a, it's a fact, right? It's a scientific <laughs> fact. Um, but, but I believe it. And, and um, the interesting part is uh, my guess is if you asked, 
you know, uh, you know, that my guess is probably 90% of the people in this world would say that most of their decisions are irrational. <laughs> right. We don't take into account the fact that we're irrational. It can be easily manipulated. I mean, they've shown this in a retail environment where you can play a little jingle. You just play it an octave higher or lower, and that can decrease sales of that display by 70%. And if you ask them, hey, why did you do that? They'll say, well, nothing to do with that jingle being played at a lower pitch. They've done the same thing uh, by displays of French wine versus German wine. They play prototypically French or German music, and that enhances it. And no one even mentions the music as part of their buying decision, right. but they're influenced by which one to buy just by hearing the background music. So there's so many millions of ways that you can be manipulated. Casinos do this all the time. Oh, I was thinking uh, the same thing. They're yep. masters at it. They'll pump yep. extra oxygen in the room on the yep. slot machines. They'll have near misses more commonly than they would normally appear to make you think that you almost got Close. the goal. Right. In fact, by the way, that's another psychological principle from an evolutionary standpoint. A near miss can be three or four times as powerful as uh, getting the goal in terms of the dopamine payoff. It makes you want to chase it more. Which, which is interesting because if you, let, let's even assume, which it sounds like they're not, but let's even assume that the slot machines or whatever are, are random, right? Then, you know, uh, you know, a near miss, I mean, the truth is, like from a math point of view, like a, a near miss is actually no closer than uh, than a, than getting you know none of the three or four or five depending on what, right. Like it's 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 just a random thing, right? It's not it's not like yes. your, chances your of winning are, are the odds of winning the next time are no higher because you had a near miss, right? Yet emotionally, right? It, and and the reason is that uh, dopamine is there to make us decide: is it enough? incentive to chase the goal. And it gives you these little squirts of motivation to get to a goal. But that's based on a model of the world. So one of the things our mind desperately wants to do is impose causality on the world. Yeah. So if this happens, then this is likely to happen or more likely to happen. And so we see those near miss two out of three lines. We go, oh, I'm, I'm getting closer to my goal. So you're getting extra motivation. So when events are truly random, like in a casino, that's when we get screwed the most because there yeah. is no causality or uh, that we can impose on that. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's fascinating. All right. Um, anything else from the book that you want to highlight? Uh, God, there's so much there. Like I said, I retraced the whole evolutionary arc from happiness, chemicals, addiction, memory, learning, storytelling, culture, and how we're wired to transmit culture. Uh, so much stuff in there. I think it applies to business, certainly anything like we're talking about, to personal relationships, and to self-improvement as well. There's a lot in there. So it's not actually an applied book. It's just the operating manual for being a human being. I love it. You know, and that's something that's that's, uh, you know, fascinating to me because, and it's something I've studied a lot. I mean, uh, one of my mentors is uh, Bob Proctor, who's uh, sure. in his 80s now and has been doing personal growth work. He, he worked directly with, uh, you know, with Nigel Conan back, you know, some of the, the early founders of personal growth uh, on, on tape back then. Uh, movement. Um, <laughs> I remember those and, days. And Bob, you know, the thing I love about Bob is Bob, Bob works... Um, Bob, for me, is the master of the conversation of paradigms and and how a lot of uh, what we do as human beings is actually on a subconscious level and it's resonant in what he calls the paradigm. It's not even an unconscious mind. You know, it's it's automatic. And that's part of what it has us often have trouble changing uh, or and it's also the filter through which we have our views, which is why 
people can see the same thing. I mean, we've seen it recently, and I don't want to get go down this rabbit hole, but politically, right, where something happens and certain people see it one way, certain people see it the other way. Absolutely. It, the same it, objective story can be experienced very differently based on your cultural values and what's behind them. In fact, uh, that's a really critical thing to understand. Human evolution is largely group against group competition. So having a cohesive group where you spread knowledge efficiently, even if it's the wrong knowledge or it's, it's false demonstrably, is more important to our survival than getting it right will override in times of stress, uncertainty, and fear our own personal experiences in order to just pass on group knowledge and stay in that cohesive tribe because that's how we survived in the past. Wow. So um, I was thinking about something you said before with uh, regard to this dopamine you know, thing, right? And uh, I thought about, you know, one of the, I love the entrepreneurial community. It's where I spend most, most of my time. I love working with folks that, you know, they're my clients. I, you know, I was over a decade uh, in entrepreneurs organization. I'm probably going to take a couple of years off, but I'm probably going to come back, you know. Yeah, I, I, we, I was I was part of the San Diego chapter of EO as well. Yeah. Right. So we, you know, we, we both have, you know, uh, spent a lot of time with, with our, our entrepreneurial peers. And, um, you know, so many of them, right, are, you know, so driven and, you know, got to build and got to grow and got to, and, and, and for me, there's something beautiful about that because I love people who are looking to create something from nothing and build something and create, you know, fulfill a vision and create jobs, all the great things that happens. But also, you know, uh, I think there is this, I'll call it unhealthy, you know, thing where people, sometimes people like a growing uh, just because it's 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 the thing to do, right? Like it's like you know, it, like they don't even know why they grow, whatever, and then they regret growing because they actually they're like, my life is way more complicated. I'm not making any more money. Like there's all these things, you know, these factors <laughs> that aren't necessarily pure. So I'm wondering, from a you know, uh, you know, I don't know if it's the dopamine thing from from an evolutionary psychology point of view, you know, what is that drive to grow, and and where is it like you know, because I think sometimes it comes from a great place, but sometimes it's driven by other things. Well, if you look at it again, it's, it's driven by what we perceive to be survival advantages. So it, the stereotypical, um, I want a bigger car, a, a bigger house, hopefully not a bigger wife, you know what I mean, but right. an attractive, intelligent wife, all of the standard trappings of power, we're doing it to fit in with a certain class of people. So entrepreneurs want to uh, level set against other entrepreneurs. Multimillionaires against other multimillionaires, billionaires, they still haven't had enough because they're comparing themselves to the billionaire class around them. So it's actually, it's our attempt to fit into our group that's driving us. Yeah. And yeah. the problem is if you're driven by more money, you never get off of that treadmill. Yeah. 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 And, and, and listen, I, I think, you know, something you said earlier about service, you know, that you've gotten to the point where it's about service, about impact, right. You know, and, and, uh, and for me, it's the same thing and service and impact, the meaning, you know, are something that we see uh, folks that have, you know, um, sort of sometimes gone through that cycle. You know, a lot of, a lot of folks get to when they get to, uh, uh, let's say our age, um, <laughs> you know, or, or, and I got, I got there a little earlier too, you know, and, and some folks never get there, but, you know, but I think, um, 
you know, I, I, I'm always fascinated at seeing people's evolutions, you know, around that. Well, you bring in a great point. We're talking in the sphere of entrepreneurship and business. And like you say, there's a certain nobility to the struggle of it and uh, to the, the impact that we can have on the world. But ultimately, I think it's uh, you have to look at a whole person and what's our intention, what's our purpose, what's our mission. I recently, about two years ago, went through an initiation weekend through the Mankind Project. I, I highly recommend this to any man. And as part of that, I recommitted to a new mission statement. And mine is, I co-create a world of peace, safety, and love through joyous expression and service. Mm. And that's my mission. And it's really important to have a purpose and a mission. And that's my North Star metric. I can tell when I'm in alignment with that and I can tell when I'm off mission. And usually I say no to the things that are off mission. And it's really important to have purpose because there are long-term health studies that say people with high purpose actually have an advantage that people with low purpose have health outcomes that are equivalent to being a two pack a day smoker yep. in terms of their, their life so it's don't just be sleepwalking through life. The most important thing, whatever you choose to do is do it on purpose. I believe that as well. And listen, and that's why when, you know, my, my clients who've been working with me for years, whatever, they, they know this and they value it. But, you know, when I have a new client sometimes and they tell me, hey, Corey, I want to do this deal. And I say, why? Mm. Right. Right. That's not a question they usually expect to come from a lawyer. The, the, the question they usually <laughs> have from a lawyer, great. They want to do a deal. That's business for me. You know, yeah, how many say, hours okay, can what I build? Are the terms of the deal or, you know, how, when do you need to close it or where? But I always say, I, I always say why. And it usually sets them back. And it, it's because, you know, I want like anything else, right? There are deals that should be on purpose for you and for your, your mission, you know, your personal and your company's missions and vision and values. And there are some that aren't. And, and the, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's a cliche in deal making, but I really believe in it that the only thing worse than not doing a deal is doing a bad deal. And, you know, and a bad deal is not just getting in bed with the wrong partner or making a bad economic. This is the worst deals are the ones that are just not aligned with your vision, value, and purpose on an individual basis on a company basis. So, you know, I always ask that why, and, you know, I think that's an important question. Well, in the immortal words of Simon Sinek, start with why. Oh, that's well, a, that's exactly. definitely a great place to be. Well, Tim, listen, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours, and we could. And uh, But listen, folks, you should definitely go out and get Tim's book. I started reading it. I, am, I will admit I haven't finished it yet, but it's amazing. Um, and um, Tim, so if people want to find out more about your you, you're speaking, you know, you're an international, you know, you've spoken all over the world. You know, if they want to find out more about your, your, your speaking or your books or, you know, anything else you're doing, what's the best place for them to go? Well, if you're interested in my public speaking and training or keynotes, uh, digital marketing consulting, especially for executives on an advisory basis, that's all at timash.com, T-I-M-A-S-H.com. And if you're interested in my latest book, uh, unleash your primal brain, just go to primalbrain.com. And that's available in ebook, audiobook narrated by me and the paperback. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. So folks, go check out the book. You've only gotten little pieces of Tim's amazing wisdom uh, here. And Tim, my final question on the podcast is always about uh, my highest value in life. We talked about like vision, value, mission, right? For me, uh, freedom is my highest ideal, my highest value in life. 
Uh, and for me, that means everything from freedom from oppression for all peoples around the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I don't have a boss, you know, so to speak. And, and you know, the freedom, you know, uh, just it's, it's a fundamental principle for me in my business and life. What does freedom mean to you in your, in your business and life? Freedom to me is, uh, is a balance between responsibility and doing the right thing. I think that a lot of people want freedom for free. There's no such thing. In fact, freedom requires a responsibility and a discipline and being uh, an impeccable warrior that most people don't exhibit. They just, they just want their you know, pony for Christmas from Santa. They don't know what real freedom is. Love it. Tim Ash, thank you so much for being an amazing guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, it's been my honor and a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.